The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 5th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about how Jimmy Butler, maybe, got the Miami Heat back in the finals against the LA Lakers. The NFL is also dealing with its first coronavirus outbreak, and we'll look at how they are doing. We'll also discuss the insanity of the baseball playoffs, eight games in a day, under 500 teams, the Corona Marlins, and so forth. And Chantel Jennings of The Athletic will be here for a conversation about the WNBA Finals, where Brianna Stewart and Sue Bird have led the Seattle Storm to a 2-0 series lead. I'm the author of The Queen, host of Slow Burn Season 4, and I'm in Washington, D.C. Also in D.C., author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, Stefan Fatsis. Uh, Stefan, are you prepared to lie to the American people about your health? Yes. Actively, I've got videos lined up. All set with that. We're taking some photos this morning. Going to change into a white shirt for that. Just make sure that you lie in a way that makes the American people feel comforted. That's what we're here to do. Mm-hmm. I've got a black Escalade parked in front, so we're all set. Joel Anderson with us from Palo Alto, a Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3. I'm actually concerned about your voice, Joel, as you, uh, as we know, you're a horse from heckling Texas Longhorn fans uh, all weekend. Oh, well, I mean, you know, they brought it on themselves, bringing that weak shit into Austin. How many years out of how many years is it now? Let's see. So TCU has owned the Longhorns six of the last seven years. So Texas is not back, by the way, just so you know. How do you, this is like a bigger philosophical question, but it's sort of around the overrated chant because it would look better for TCU if Texas was actually good, right? You don't want to say, oh, they beat Texas six of the last seven years because Texas is horrible. Well, no, I mean, of course people try to diminish our ownership of this series uh, <laughs> uh, since we've joined the Big 12. But, I mean, I would remind people that Texas has never been as good as everybody has said they were um, since desegregation. So, um, you know, their heyday is when they were the last all-white national championship football team. They haven't, I mean, other than the Vince Young years, they really have underperformed throughout the last 50 years or so. So, so your yeah. taunting of Texas is a morally righteous cause. It's not just for fun. It's for... Oh, no. I mean, I think, you know, they earned... Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is... It's about more than the game, Josh. Understood. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday night in the NBA bubble, Jimmy Butler scored 40 points with 13 assists and 11 rebounds and leading the outmanned Miami Heat to a 115-104 Game 3 victory over the Lakers. Credit to Mark J. Spears for pointing out that Butler is the first player ever to outscore, out-rebound, and out-assist LeBron James in a finals game. The Heat are still down two games to one in the series, but after the game, Butler teased the fact that Heat center Bam Adebayo, who's been out since the second half of game one, could return for Tuesday's game four. Joel, the series is getting at least a little bit interesting. 
And all credit to Jimmy Butler for making it that way. I'm glad that the Heat put up that last stand last night because we're the last recording stand. This. All right, good. Yeah, that last stand. <laughs> right. Yeah, we. I'm glad. I'm glad that they did that. And we're recording this uh, Monday, so the game happened the night before, right? So I'm glad that they put in a little work. They put in their half, so we get to see a little bit more basketball. Uh, because up until then, it was looking like one of the worst NBA Finals that I'd seen since you know maybe. I mean, one of those finals where the Lakers played the Nets or maybe the yeah. Spurs versus the Cavs, that the first LeBron team that made it to the finals. But yeah, um, Jimmy Butler is sort of a fascinating player to me because I remember hearing a few years ago, way back when he was with the Bulls, that based on it, I can't remember if it was either win share or plus minus, that he was essentially the most valuable player in the league. So that effectively, the Bulls had the biggest drop off of any team in the league. When Butler was off the floor. And this was, you know, four or five years ago. Which means he had bad teammates. He had very bad teammates. I think they were barely a 500 team at that point. But tell me what Jimmy Butler does well. Like, that makes him a great player because he doesn't have a great handle. He's not a great jump shooter. It's not like he's physically overwhelming. So whenever I see Jimmy Butler play, I'm like, how is this guy making himself so effective out there. There should not be a case in which LeBron and Anthony Davis are on the floor together and Jimmy Butler is the best player on the floor. I don't know how that happens, but I, you know, I, I don't necessarily believe in all that grit and toughness shit, but he may be one of the rare examples of a guy where it actually is true that his drive and his grit and his hustle and all that sort of stuff helps to make him an elite player. He's the exception that proves the rule, right? He's the kind of athlete that works really hard and suffers no fools. And that's a difficult combination. And I think it's impacted the way that we view Jimmy Butler. He's had an itinerant career. This is his fourth team in his nine-year career. It's also his fourth team in the last four years. And, you know, maybe his personality is why he's had an itinerant career. He is no, he has no patience for bullshit. His last stops in Minnesota and Philly in particular seem to have included players whose bullshit or lack of interest in learning or working hard, he just couldn't abide or had coaches that he didn't respect. And maybe we can get into that a little. Maybe other players would have worked to change, but that's not Butler. Um, and judging by what he has said in interviews during these playoffs, Miami doesn't seem to have players or coaches that he feels the need to publicly disdain for their work ethic or their responsibility or their competitiveness. And that's probably made him a better player on the court. Well, sports are weird, right? Because in any other industry, if you're as elite as Butler is, he's in the you know top 1% of basketball players in the world, maybe even probably in the top 0.1%. You could pick your team, pick, you could pick your employer and say, all right, I play like this. My personality is like this. I'm going to go to the place that fits my style and my personality. And it's not weird to think about that. But the fact that Butler has sort of forced his way or played his way to Miami, which culturally and in terms of the coach, Eric Spolstra and the teammates, seems like the place that fits him best in the NBA, he's seen as being difficult in the context of professional sports and professional basketball. And so I think that's important to understand. And Joel, I think you made a great point in that um, it's dumb to talk about players having grit and will and perseverance because we know that with very, very few exceptions, people have made it to the NBA because they work harder than everybody else and because they have grit <laughs> and perseverance. 
But, you know, you hear stories about like that famous practice when he was with the Wolves, where he took the third team and destroyed the starters and didn't even score. Right. There is something like (laughs) there is something different about this guy. And you have to have a baseline level of skill. Like he's a good shooter in the post, a baseline level of athleticism. He's shown to be a very good passer in this series. Like you need to be elite at all that stuff. And, but there is something about him that even among his peers distinguishes him in terms of his attitude. I think I've mentioned here before, one of my favorite podcasts is The Knuckleheads, which is hosted by Darius Miles and Quentin Richardson. You know, they were famous in the early 2000s playing with the Clippers um, when they were still bad, but still really good characters. And, and, and Jimmy Butler went on that podcast and talked a little bit about his path to the NBA. So he's from, I saw it was listed as a Houston suburb, Tumball, Tumball, Texas, which is just outside of Houston. It's really not a suburb, or maybe it is today, but back then that was the country. And so he's from an area that's sort of way off the map. It's not an athletic powerhouse. They're not known for anything in particular. Then he went to a junior college. Then he went to Marquette. And, you know, he kind of like scuffled his way into the NBA. And what I remember him saying in that interview on the podcast was like, I can't go back to Tumball, you know? Um, He had an extraordinarily difficult upbringing. And, you know, a lot of NBA players have that. A lot of professional athletes have that. But it certainly has been as much a part of his journey that, you know, we we heard about him being basically abandoned by his family at a very young age and kind of, you know, bouncing around. And so, you you know, obviously it helped to create a guy who plays with the sort of desperation that we saw last night in Game 3, where, I mean, you know, to to do what he did against that team, to be outmanned, that's one of the best finals performances We've ever seen. I mean, it it calls to mind what LeBron did in game one against the Warriors last year where they lost. Remember, he had like a 50-point triple-double, and they still lost. And also what LeBron did in the finals when Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving got hurt. Right, in in 2015, yeah. And the Cavs went up 2-1 and eventually lost that series 4-2. And I think we all think that that's what's going to happen to the Heat here. But to say that the only comparison in terms of what Butler did, is what LeBron did, I think goes to show you how good Jimmy Butler is. Yeah. And the kind of player that I really admire, the kind of athlete that you admire. I love athletes that are just don't want to play that game, any games. It's just, I want to be fucking good, and you better be along for the ride with me, and I will make you better. But you've got to buy in, and you have to have the same attitude that I do. And Jimmy Butler has that. Somebody who you might admire from a distance um, I guess we, I guess we all like to think that if we had a coworker like that, then we would get along with them because, like, oh, well, they would appreciate me and not appreciate it. And we're like, maybe, maybe we need to have more self knowledge. Like, I don't know if Jimmy Butler would like me actually. <laughs> he's a, a strange dude. I mean, this coffee thing in the bubble where he's like charging his teammates. $20 for for lattes or whatever. Yeah, uh, big face coffee. He's got his own he's got his own logos on those coffee cups. They don't pay for themselves. Right. That's true. And he keeps uh, Mark Wahlberg hours too, right? The Mark Wahlberg is his buddy and he like apparently he adopted Mark Wahlberg's uh daily routine which involves getting up at 2:30 in the morning and going to bed at 7:30 p.m. Yeah, I, I, in my notes, I wrote down the whole Mark Wahlberg workout schedule. But just to back up for a second, he's like genuinely very good friends with Mark Wahlberg. 
and said that the reason that he works out early in the morning is because Mark Wahlberg did so. And so we think about, you know, Joel, I don't want to d- diminish Butler's upbringing and the fact that he took this this difficult path to the NBA. But like by his own admission, he didn't work out really early in the morning and really get after it until he met Hollywood celebrity slash problematic cultural figure, Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Marky Mark, man. You don't get those abs, you know, just by slacking off. You know what I mean? 2.30 a.m., wake up. 2.45 a.m., prayer time. 3.15, breakfast. 3.40 to 5.15, work out. I won't read the rest of it, but bedtime is 7.30 p.m. So are we to believe that he has never actually seen Jimmy Butler play? <laughs> He's in bed at 7.30. <laughs> Something here is a mess. Sunday afternoon games are for Mark Wahlberg. Well, wait a minute. If Mark lives in, in L.A., then it's possible that yeah. you could see the in the tail end of the games on the East Coast. Great so. point. This is East Coast bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. On that note, <laughs> game, game four, yeah. Tuesday. We really broke it down. That's right. We didn't talk about Anthony Davis at all. But. Yeah, he had a bad night. I mean, I think, as you said, it's it's hard to maybe the fact that it's hard to imagine Jimmy Butler being the best player on, on the floor when LeBron James and Anthony Davis are on the floor means that game four will go differently. But I do think if Bam is back, like the series will turn for the Lakers on like more great Anthony Davis games. And it's going to be like the series where Anthony Davis kind of proves his greatness and so he just needs to not have shitty games like he did in in game three and the lakers will be fine apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on your favorite products at apple two percent on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium apple card or virtual card number Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As we speak on Monday morning, the New England Patriots should be landing in Kansas City to play the Chiefs on Monday night. They were supposed to play on Sunday, but the game was postponed after Patriots quarterback Cam Newton and some dude on Kansas City's practice squad tested positive for the coronavirus. According to reports, the Patriots' latest round of testing turned up no positives, and then the team boarded two planes, one for players and staff who had contact with Cam Newton, and one for everybody else. Joel, when I heard about the transportation plans, the first thing I thought was this is a sequel to that movie Con Air, COVID Air. Uh, the NFL this past week faced its first real corona crises. The Tennessee Titans remained shut down after racking up around 20 positive tests. And then the Newton saga. How do you think the league is handling all of this so far? Well, I wish that we had the ability to cut up all of our audio from earlier this year when we talked about, well, they're doing okay, but let's just see what happens. You know, it's really easy to give them credit for doing well until something happens. Well, here we are, right? So I guess starting off, I'd say that the NFL is doing about as well as you can expect of a league that hasn't committed to a bubble concept. Right. So there's been four weeks of ball there and not really had a mass interruption of games. You know, when we cut on TV on Sunday, football is on. So by that standard, they've done okay. But in a time of like rising infection rates and death rates around the country, it still just strikes me as irresponsible to continue pressing forward in this way. Like I just, I mean, look, so their solution 
is to break the team up into two different planes, fly them there, as if those people are not going to come in contact with anybody else along the way, on the way to their hotels and to the stadium, right? Like these, they're going to have an inf- a plane of potentially infected people go through the airport, go through the hotel, go through all this routine that it takes to get to the game. And then when they get to the game, they can't even, this, I'm, I'm certain they're going to be tested multiple times after this, right? But that's still no guarantee that somebody won't t- turn up positive later. And like, to me, that's why I'm like, why are we still doing this? So the guy on the Kansas City practice squad is Ole Miss quarterbacking legend Jordan Tayamu. He's a person. He is a person, and I'm glad you've acknowledged his personhood, <laughs> Josh. So here's a concept that I'm that I'm still working on. Or this is more a question for for Joel because I think Stefan, you've got no shot here. Do you remember <laughs> Tulane wide receiving legend Mark Zeno? No, no, not from, at all. From I'm the mid eighties, he did play. <laughs> he did play in the uh, in the NFL. Also played for the uh, Calgary St- Stampeders. I'm going to develop the concept of Mark Zeno's paradox in that <laughs> you've got the planes of the. Maybe it's not exactly half, but you've got the two planes. So you've got the COVID mm-hmm. plane, the non-COVID plane. And then maybe half of the players on the non-COVID plane will get COVID and you'll send them back on multiple planes and then <laughs> half of them. And then you'll like, we're going to run out of planes at some point <laughs> if we're going to have to keep dividing the the COVID and non-COVID players into separate traveling parties. But I think, Stefan, there are two different ways you can look at this. Number one, the fact that you have to divide the players into two planes suggests maybe you shouldn't be playing this game. And so you would argue that the NFL doing this is irresponsible and shows a kind of recklessness. On the other hand, you have what we saw in the Saints-Lions game, where the Saints had one positive test from the fullback Michael Burton. They retested everyone. They had the team up until some players up until three in the morning. It was determined that it was a false positive, which is something that you'll get um, if you're doing this rapid testing. But they would have, it seems, canceled the game if it turned out that it was a real positive. And so that suggests that maybe they're they're taking this stuff kind of seriously. Am I right to see mixed signals here, Stefan? Yeah, I mean, I mean, according to the CDC, the incubation period for for coronavirus recommends a 14-day quarantine after exposure to a positive case, period. So the donut hole, as Mike Florio on Pro Football Talk called it, is that the NFL doesn't know who is potentially contagious at any given moment. So some of those people on the COVID plane, on COVID air, might have been contagious on Monday morning, and some might not have. And similarly, some other people that Cam Newton perhaps came into contact with also might be latent and still contagious. Bill Belichick on Friday last week said in a in a in a news conference, Cam does a great job of connecting with everybody, whether it's his teammates, his receivers, guys on defense, other people in the organization. Oh my God, Cam Newton is a super spreader. He's so, <laughs> worked so hard that he's going to contaminate the whole Patriots team. Well, this is a notional though. I mean, we've seen this with the Titans that it started out with one case and then right. as tends to happen, now there are lots, lots more than one case. And I think the interesting thing here to think about, Joel, is that it's analogous to what we've seen in co- at colleges where administrators blame students yep. for having parties and say, oh, like this would have been 
you know, we, we would have been in great shape and it would have been totally normal if not for these crazy students acting like students in, in a way that's totally predictable. And so uh, this kind of like discussion and investigation of like who it was on the Titans that broke protocol, like I understand why you'd want to know that and look into that. But it also feels like the NFL trying to say, oh, it's actually not our fault that this thing that's entirely predictable that we put into place is happening. Right. Well, I mean, the thing is, is with any protocol, the protocol is only good as the people that adhere to it, right? And we know that it's just very difficult to adhere to protocols. Just in the course of our regular life, just us as regular humans who are not in the NFL, who have no compelling reason to leave our homes or do anything else, people still get infected along the route of just being human. And so, yeah, I mean, the NFL can say, well, hey, you weren't supposed to stop at a convenience store. You know, you weren't supposed to go to this charity event or whatever. I think that is that sort of what the originating event was. Well, the Raiders went to some event and weren't wearing masks. Yeah, the Titans suspect that an assistant coach who was photographed not wearing a mask in close contact with players may have helped spread it. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, yeah, John Gruden got fined for wearing, you know, not wearing his mask on the field. And, and, and you can look at any football sideline on Saturday or Sunday and see all sorts of, you know, potential moments where they could be spreading virus amongst each other and and, and the people in the greater community. It actually, if you go back to college football at SMU this weekend, they had to dismiss fans from the end of one, you know, from one of the areas behind the end zone because they weren't observing social distancing. So it's just. I know that people think that these protocols are supposed to work and that if people just follow the rules that there won't be any problems. But, I mean, we have seen that these protocols just don't work. Like, I mean, they they can under really extreme circumstances. Or that they need to be constantly monitored and changed, which is what's happening in the NFL. They're reevaluating the kinds of tests they use. They're reevaluating where players are going to be allowed to go and what they're going to be allowed to do. But there is going to be a gigantic hole. It's just like it's not solvable unless you solve it the way the NBA solved it um, and the and the NHL solved it and the WNBA and, the WNBA and, and soccer and, leagues. I mean, it's it totally works if you're willing to play your sport not on planet Earth and just play it in a biosphere. Right. But if you're if you're in if you're in America, then it's not going to work. It's like a pretty simple dividing line. Right. And also, I mean, the Titans had 18 positive tests over those six days, right? I think that's where where it last was. We have, the thing is, we just sort of take for granted that a positive test means that a person is going to get better and they'll be able to return to action. Like you're taking a tremendous chance with somebody's health, long-term health as well. Like maybe they'll recover enough in time to play, but we have no idea like what the long-term effects of these this disease will be. And we've had 18 people that have been exposed just on that team. That in and of itself is reason enough to me to say, well, hey, maybe we need to reconsider the purpose of this. Like maybe this is just not the year for that. But I know that I'm extreme on this point and I can I can understand if people think that I'm crazy. You're, I'm a family you're, does, you're so. setting the edge like a good a good yeah. <laughs> defensive end. That's good. That's important to do. Well, you know, you're raising the much more important point, but the other point which a listener 
pointed out to me, which I think was a good flag, and I, I'm glad they did, was that like we talk about Russell Westbrook being so shitty, and oh, he had like the crappiest game ever in the in the Western Conference semis, which he kind of did, but also he had had COVID, and so we're we're not really incorporating, or at least I'm not. I'll own it myself. Like this this idea that like you know when you get this disease, you're not just gonna come back like a week later and be awesome necessarily. Right. I mean, some people genuinely don't have symptoms and have a mild case and probably doesn't affect their performance. And some people will have uh, a tougher case and there will be lingering effects and we don't necessarily know who that is. But it's it's just funny. I mean, again, owning it myself that I just like have not incorporated that into my brain, that, that understanding. Who's to say that Cam Newton is going to be regular when he gets back? Right. I mean, not only are the Patriots most likely they're going to have to throw Brian Hoyer out there against Patrick Bones. Right. So count that as an L. But when Cam comes back, how do we know that he's going to have the same, you know, lung capacity and everything else that he had prior to this? We just don't know. No, sure don't. <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, Cam Newton posted on Instagram in that, you know, that typeface that looks like Cyrillic um, that <laughs> he will take his time to get healthy. And that's an acknowledgement that nobody knows how much time that's going to be. And Cam Newton would be smart and the Patriots would be smart to, you know, stay in there in his equivalent of Walter Reed and not get in that limo and drive around until he is better. <laughs> and the NFL is probably going to have to start figuring out ways to adjust the schedule. Um, there were reports that coaches, some coaches were calling for the league to cut the season to 12 games. But the fact that the NFL went ahead and rescheduled the Patriots Chiefs game just two days after all of this, feels like it's taking some risk. I don't quite understand why this game couldn't have waited longer to make sure that there was a longer duration of negative tests on both teams. Like the Titans game did. Right. The 12-game thing is, is interesting, but I think the NFL is going to have a harder time conceptually with the idea that like this is a year in which you just don't have to play every game. Like in baseball, even the shortened season is long enough where if you miss a handful of games are just like, oh, we'll just use winning percentage. It's fine. Like right. in the NFL, the, the like, we all must play every game, you know, both for revenue reasons and just because there aren't that many and every game is is important in determining, you know, who's, who's the best. I, I think that's a harder hurdle to get over. Yeah. And I would add before we finish that that report about the 12 game season, one of them that I saw was from Mike Florio also. And he added that the coaches are also suggesting putting teams in hotels for all of the remaining games in the season. Good luck. <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. By the time you hear this, the divisional round of the baseball playoffs will be underway with the dreaded Houston Astros from the vile city of Houston with their nefarious 
clowning, mm. cheating ways. Wow. We'll be taking we'll be taking on the wow. Oakland A's. Just trying to get you engaged, Joel. Okay. Um, <laughs> but before we move forward, so easy to bait. Before we move forward, we must look back to the bizarre spectacle of the 16-team opening round of this year's playoffs, which featured the first two playoff teams in history with losing records, the Brewers and those naughty Astros. Mm. Uh, The Fatsis-era flashback of afternoon games on network television, and a September madness spectacle of eight games in a single day. Stefan, the baseball playoffs have never looked like this before. They might not look like this ever again, although we can talk about which stuff the league will try to carry forward. But what have you made of the pandemic baseball postseason? First, I feel obligated to respond to your ageism, Josh. Baseball has had plenty of afternoon playoff games in your lifetime. I did some research. On network television? On television. In fact, there were... On network television? Yes, on network television, in fact. There were afternoon World Series games as recently as 1986, a mere 34 years ago. And And you were a sentient being then. Probably rooting for the Mets even. On a weekday? Weekday, weeknight, I don't know. Weekday, weekend. There were day games in the World Series in your lifetime. I will very much agree that this is very much, it seems like an 80s phenomenon, because I remember baseball being on in the middle of the day as a kid, and it seemed like a very regular thing. Yeah. All right. I, I will concede, though, that I was around and probably watched the very first nighttime World Series game, which was in 1971. Pirates Orioles, Jeez. game four, Oof. 63 million people tuned in, 54% of American TV sets in use at the time watched that game. That's crazy, man. Really? I know. I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that the uh, pandemic postseason is not going to draw those kinds of numbers. There's not a lot going on in America entertainment-wise. I mean, yeah. that's, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> not a lot of TV channels as well. Mm. There, there was. Yes. All right, I was fine with the 16-team first round. Usually it's 10, 60 baseball games compared to 162. Do not feel like a reasonable way to settle who's playoff deserving, who's not. So why not let some sub-500 teams in? Who cares? I think it was also fine only in hindsight because the best of three first round results delivered good best of five second round matchups, both in a baseball sense and a narrative sense. So you've got the cheating Astros against the team with the player that first fingered them, the A's. You've got the Yankees and the Rays who don't like each other. You've got the Dodgers and the Padres who have the best players and some of the most interesting young players in the game. And then you've got the Atlanta team, eh, who I could live without, against the COVID Marlins. These are all East against East and West against West matchups by the way, which is weird. No flyover series in the second round here. The COVID Marlins, Joel, you know, we've been talking about how this uh, disease can leave you ill and not up to peak performance for a long time after. This team like has all these players test positive, doesn't play for a long time, is considered to be actually at quite bad going into the season and yeah. like a thousand to one odds. To, and started off bad. And then win. they start off yeah. bad. And but, now they're yeah. just like, and and nobody's like you know no star players that that are really known to the American people. Right. How many Marlins can you name? I love Sixto Sanchez. I mean, what a great baseball name. He's the best Sixto since Sixto Lescano. I mean, unbelievable name, Sixto. And somehow this team, in like classic Marlin style, just like you know manages to pull success out of their butt in like the most bizarre way possible. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I guess they're kind of like the Spider-Man, you know what I mean? They got, they got sick, and then from their illness, they gain new strength, right? But, you know, as somebody who's, 
admittedly not much of a baseball fan and somebody who admittedly does not watch very much baseball, I think this is kind of cool because we already know that baseball postseason doesn't actually have that much to do with the regular season. Like, it's a really bad way of determining who the best team is, right? So if a 162-game sample helps you to determine who the best teams are, then it stands the reason that five- and seven-game samples are not going to do a very good job of, you know, letting those great teams emerge at the end. Because all it takes is one, you know, hot streak, a couple of hot, you know, two two decent pitchers, and that can totally flip a series. And it won't tell you that much about who the better team is. It'll just tell you about who had the best pitching matchup, right? So, yeah, I mean, I just don't, you know, the, the Astros were cheaters. They had a losing record. They were cheaters in a sport that's not known for cheating at all, right? I mean, you know, I mean, it's, you know, everything we know about baseball is that everybody's above board and everybody's reputable and nobody would ever imbibe substances or use anything that would give them an advantage in the game. So the Astros me, being the first team here. that ever cheated. What did you think of what Carlos Correa said, the Houston shortstop? I know a lot of people are mad. I know a lot of people don't want to see us here. But what are they going to say now? That feels like a guy who's after your heart, Joel. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I mean, I just, I mean, here's the thing, man. Don't I apologize. Mean, yeah. I mean, you know, I okay, sure. You could say that they cheated or they engaged in some sort of cheating. Fine. Whatever. So, Presumably that's over now, right? Like we we think that that's been corrected and the Astros Kinda are playing straight up. Kind of hard to use a garbage can in uh, right. yeah, in, in, in an, an empty, empty stadium. stadium. You're right. Not yeah. Caught. So they were they quite bad. They were quite bad this year. So I mean, well, I mean, well, now, but now they're in the divisional round. You know what I mean? So you know, I guess it's uh, poetic justice for everybody that thought that they it was all the result of cheating, and here the Astros are again. And all Elton, it takes. This is all it takes yes, for Joel to care about baseball is a Houston <laughs> team that was accused of cheating. Uh, yeah, a I can't run in the playoffs. I, can't, I might just drive up to Oakland in my Astro shirts just over the next couple. I mean, though we shouldn't be outside in public, just for the record. But uh, I may just drive up all there it, with them. All it takes for Houston is just an, a shortened season and COVID and an expanded yeah. playoffs, and they're and they're right back in <laughs> it, right baby. Back in That's it. right. Yeah. Justin Peters wrote a good piece um, for us at Slate. We'll link to in our show notes, and Justin. Um, we've had him on the show before. He's a part-time Wrigley Field beer vendor. He's been doing it for for decades. And he went outside Wrigley for game one of their series against the Marlins, Stefan. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what, what he was going to find. And he didn't know what he was going to find before, when we assigned the piece. And you could argue, like, there, there's a version of this where it's like, okay, you're, no fans are allowed in the stadium. There might be like some sort of irresponsible gathering outside where people like it's a stadium in a neighborhood and people want to be around it. And the Cubs are like, you know, the three seed and they've got a they've got a shot at this. And he went and there was nobody there. And he said it was just totally depressing. And we were talking afterwards about what does this say? Is it because um, and, and, you know, where he landed in, in the piece, I'm curious if you agree, is that it just felt like. Even though they're playing in Chicago and, you know, Oakland's playing in Oakland and Houston is playing in Houston, it just doesn't feel real. Like, it feels like they're playing in some off-world colony and that the season is just, like, happening someplace that, you know, is not in our neighborhoods. It's not in our our cities. And it just, like, didn't occur to people that, like, a game is being—a playoff game is being played— in the city where we would be going to playoff game, but I don't, I don't know. Does that make sense to you? It just struck me as like kind of maybe appropriate, but like odd and a little eerie mm-hmm. that you could go outside a stadium and it's just like a total ghost town. Justin's piece is really lovely, and 
I, I think it demonstrates the way that baseball is different. Um, you know, the NBA put the players in this bubble, but not only that, they played the games in non-NBA arenas. So you're going in, you're knowing that it's not in the normal place that these games should be played. Baseball has been playing inside these gigantic stadiums. And in places like Wrigley or in Fenway Park in Boston, in the few places that have foot traffic around them that are part of an urban life, it's going to seem even more disjointed. You know, the way Justin described it, the games were broadcast from this uncanny valley with all the people that give live baseball its warmth and character, fans in the seats, vendors in the stands, disappeared. And I think that's the big difference here, that we're seeing a sort of Pleasantville-like situation in baseball, but it's being staged in the actual places where the games are normally staged. Maybe it'll feel different in these next rounds of, of the playoffs, which are being played in neutral stadiums in a quasi-bubble for the players. Yeah, and you guys would never believe this, but I did once cover baseball professionally in my life at having to cover, I think it was back when the Astros were in the National League and they played the, the Cardinals. Um, Just like the one time you covered a hockey game? No, I, I actually covered the Astros all year uh, for two seasons. When they So when they had Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit at the, at the lead of their um, rotation. And so I went to see... An earlier these, era of Astros cheating. <laughs> come on. Come on, get out of here. They learned it from the Yankees. But anyway, <laughs> so what I would say is I, yeah, I went to these games when it was, you know, back when it was Minute Maid. Well, I think it was Enron Field then, or maybe it was st- just yeah, Enron Field. Minute Maid Park. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm not doing a great job making the case for Houston as a city of uh, not, not being of ill repute. And then going to Bush Stadium. And there is something about postseason baseball and having fans there that is special. Like I said, I haven't looked at this a lot, but... I can't imagine that this doesn't feel extremely strange because I think the fans in postseason baseball are such a big part of the tableau, such a big part of the landscape there. And without them there, it just seems like it would be really hard to generate a lot of tension in the same way that you get in seasons where there are fans there and there's these full home fields, right? And one of the ways that the broadcasts generate tension is by zooming in on fans at critical moments. Yes. And I, I hate that. And I'm hoping that Fox does zoom in on, you know, the cardboard cutouts of fans. That would be great. I think that would be great. I mean, the game of the postseason so far was the one in which Fernando Tatis Jr. had two home runs and his teammate Will Myers also had two home runs in a game against the Cardinals. 11-9 win for the the Padres and Tatis flipped his bat and amazing, great um, tension and, and, and excitement, but it would have been better with the crowd going... Apeshit when when he hit those those home runs. There are going to be some fans in the stands when the games go to Arlington, Texas, perhaps due to Texas's views on uh, public health. There will be eleven thousand five hundred tickets available for each game in the National League Championship Series and the World Series in the forty thousand capacity Texas Rangers Stadium, and it'll be the first neutral site World Series ever. And so we have that to look forward to, I guess, or not, or not. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. 
we became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. All right, on this week's bonus for Slate Plus members, Chantel Jennings, who we're about to talk to in our WNBA segment, will be sticking around and we'll chat with her more about what's been going on inside the WNBA bubble, why there aren't any journalists in there, and other pressing women's basketball matters. To hear that conversation, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year, and you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Over the weekend, the Seattle Storm took a commanding 2-0 lead over the Las Vegas Aces in the WNBA Finals. Brianna Stewart scored 22 points to lead the Storm within one more win of a championship in their second in three years. Stewart, or Stewie as fans call her, has returned to form so much more quickly than anyone could have expected. The 2018 WNBA MVP ruptured her right Achilles tendon while playing in the EuroLeague Final in April 2019. Yet here Stewart is, little more than a year and a half later, going off at 37 points and 15 rebounds in Game 1 of the Finals. Our next guest, Chantel Jennings of The Athletic, wrote after that game that, quote, Stewart has turned this season, one that had countless reasons to be stagnant, into one in which she is more dominant than she was in 2018 as the MVP. The Storm can complete the sweep Tuesday with a victory in Game 3. Chantel, tell us, please, how is Brianna Stewart better than she was before? I think you have to look at a few different aspects of her play. And obviously part of that is her individual play, right? You look at her stats, they're improved from where they were in 2018. So very basically, there's a good answer. But I think you also look, because it's a team sport, at the team perspective. And the benefit of 2019 for the Storm team was that they were without Sue Bird or Brianna Stewart. And so they all had to raise their game. Players who hadn't started before became starters. Everyone else raised their play. And then you bring back to that Brianna Stewart and Sue Bird. And so not only is she better than she was, hungrier than she was, she's now surrounded by players who have more experience on the floor. And so I think that has just elevated the entire Storm team. This is a really deep team, but also with a couple of superstars. I mean, you saw in game one with Sue Bird, the the classic 2.16 assist stat line that we all uh, love. And you can't get 16 assists unless... You have uh, teammates who are making a lot of shots. I mean, they're making threes off, off assists. It wasn't like these were all all layups, although Bird was doing a great job of setting up her teammates. Um, she is in the position of being a player who is super duper old for her sport and yet still younger than me, which I find extremely upsetting. Um, <laughs> but can you talk a little bit about Sue Bird? And it seems like athletically she's really, really, uh, it, it's not like she's, slow and just using guile like it seems like she's she's in pretty like peak form right now yeah she's one of those players and i actually wrote about this this week as well she turns 40 in a few weeks i think it's something like two weeks she'll turn 40 and sort of everything that's happened this season has come with that sort of asterisk of like she's playing so well dot 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 for someone who's almost 40 um she's she's leading this team so well dot 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 for her age and i asked her at the beginning of the season if you could only have one version of yourself, sort of the early 2000s version, fresh out of Yukon, young, bounce back, no problem, Sue Bird, or the Sue Bird of late, who misses games for injuries, and she wants to clarify, not for age-related injuries, just professional athlete injuries, but sort of this, this version of Sue Bird who takes longer to recover, 
who is almost 40. She was kind of hard pressed to decide. She said there's a sweet spot, but maybe the younger version. And for me, I would take the older version. She's smarter now. There isn't a play on the court she hasn't seen. There isn't a pass she hasn't made. And she is surrounded by excellent shooters. And, and to get an assist, it does take two players. But she is playing so well because of her mind. And she has said for a long time that as long as she can sort of keep up with her quickness, with her speed, with her strength, her brain is always going to be her advantage on the court. And I think in year 17 in the WNBA, especially what we're seeing in this finals performance from her, like she is the smartest player on the court, bar none. Seattle has historically been one of the dominant teams in the WNBA, going back to the start of Sue Bird's career almost 20 years ago. And at that time, she was dishing passes to Lauren Jackson, and now it's Brianna Stewart. It's, you know, the league hasn't been, you know, 20 plus years is not the NBA in terms of length of a league, but we are seeing now, like, this is a franchise that has managed to sustain itself. How has it been able to do that? Is it simply a matter of like, oh, we, you know, we ended up with Brianna Stewart and Sue Bird, or is there something different going on with this team? Well, you look at sort of the composition of their roster and they've done a lot of things right. They've also sort of lucked into some situations. They got Jewel Lloyd as the number one pick out of Notre Dame in a year that they weren't sure if she was going to come out. Ezie Magbagor is Australian, one of Lauren Jackson's protégés. They they saw her. They're great at finding talent and they're great at developing talent. And again, I think it's when you have that team atmosphere, when you can put players on the court who work so well together, everyone's level is raised. And, and it's not just those number one picks like Sue and Stewie. You have someone like Alicia Clark, who one of the best three-point shooters in the WNBA, the only unanimous pick on the coaches all-defensive team. She came out of Middle Tennessee State. She was a second-round pick, but she's developed into this all-league caliber player that no one wants to face. And so they're just smart. They do a lot of things right. And even in seasons when you think how could they pull this off like last year when they don't have Bird and they don't have Stewart, they still finish 18 and 16, make the playoffs. So I think it's a culture thing. I think it's a depth. I think it's talent thing. It's it's sort of all of it together. It's worth mentioning that for all the good things we've said about Seattle, that they're the second seed here, right? That the it's the aces that are the top seed and would presumably have been the favorite here. But obviously, they've fallen apart. And I've watched some of the game, too. And that game was close until, you know, maybe midway through the third quarter, right? What's going on with the Aces? Um, and, and, and why are they f- coming up short here right now? Well, what's going on with the Aces is the storm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they, they are the number one seed. Uh, it was right up until the end. They had to win out their final three games in the last four days of the season to get that number one seed. And in the game that clinched Las Vegas, the number one seed over Seattle, neither Stewart nor Bird played. And so they got the number one seed. And and the WNBA is a little bit different than the NBA in terms of seeding. And they sort of reseed after every round and, and how the playoffs work. And so we don't need to get into all of that. But Las Vegas and Seattle were very close. And now in the playoffs, a lot has happened. You have a Vegas team that had to play five games against Connecticut a team that was underseeded at seven seed because they started out their season so poorly, whereas Seattle finished Minnesota in three games. And so they had so much more time to recover. In the regular season, they played 22 games in 50 days. So it was like game off, game off, game off. From the beginning of the year, I said, you know, I think whoever's the last team standing, healthiest, freshest is going to win this thing. And 
coming into the finals, that was absolutely Seattle. But what makes Seattle so good is their defense. They take teams out of their game plan. And you look at Las Vegas, they like to get to the free throw line. They don't shoot a lot of threes. Bill Lambeer's thought is a trip to the free throw line, you get 1.6 points per possession without running any time off the clock. And they have taken half as many free throws as they normally do. Uh, against the storm and they've taken twice as many three-pointers so they're sort of settling for these shots that they don't normally take and they're shooting pretty well from beyond the arc but they're just not in the flow of their identity as a team well they're also i mean they've gotten this far without liz cambage the australian who decided not to play this season and kelsey plum the point guard who got hurt sixth woman of the year on that team also got hurt and yeah this dierica hamby right so mm-hmm. she's out. They've still got the MVP, Asia Wilson, who's a lefty who uh, takes it strong to the rack. Got to shout out Asia Wilson. But it, it just seems like, as you said, this is a team that has maybe reached their ceiling and is up against a fresher and, and better opponent. And I was wondering, kind of on that subject, like another thing that will determine and has determined which team is going to win the WNBA title this year is like which team has the fewest star players that opt out either for social justice reasons or for, you know, like Olena Deladon did for for health reasons. There's been a lot going on in this league. And I think fewer of the great players in the league are in the wobble than decided to, to be in the NBA bubble, for instance. Yeah, there were a lot of opt-outs and there were a lot of medical exemptions. You noted the two for the Aces. And I think almost in that way, it's sort of ironic that this 2020 Aces team is kind of like the 2019 Storm team, where people didn't expect them to make it as far as they did because two 30 start players from a season ago weren't with the team. Um, But I think that's why Asia Wilson won MVP this year, because she really put this team on her back and led them to the finals. Angel McCautry played really well late, especially after Dierica Hamby went down. Las Vegas has, in addition to sort of their normal, you know, get to the free throw line, draw fouls, get opponents in foul trouble game plan, they have the strongest bench in WNBA history. They average 35 points a game off the bench. They have players who were starters last year coming off the bench, and Bill Lambeer uses that very schematically to sort of bring energy into the game. And I think we're also seeing not just that shortened depth for their team right now against the storm, but they're just out of sorts. It's not their identity. They're used to having more coming off the bench and every player is now being forced to do a little bit more because of that. Joel, you know, we've talked about the NBA, the tension between wanting fans and the media to focus on the social justice initiatives that are so important to the players and the on-court stuff. And it seems like in the WNBA, a lot of the conversation and the coverage has been on the off-court stuff. I mean, you saw Brianna Stewart wearing the Vote Warnock mm-hmm. shirt supporting Dream owner Kelly Loeffler's opponent in the U.S. Senate race. And it seems like, I don't know if if we then feel like the on-court stuff is getting short shrift because of that, or is this what the players want? Is the kind of coverage that we're seeing what they've been aspiring for? I mean, Joel, I'm interested in what you think, and, and Chantel, obviously, I'm interested in your take, too. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I get, the thing is, though, and Chantel, we can talk about this in a second, about, you know, sort of the viewership, right, of the WNBA. But to the extent that people have been paying attention to the WNBA, I think that's taken more of a priority. It's like been an elevated part of the conversation in the WNBA, even more so than the NBA, right? Like the NBA had to have a strike for that, for those conversations to not 
you know, just be part of the background. But with the WNBA, it's sort of been centered along with the games. Like, I don't think you think of the Wubble and what they've been doing this season and this this abbreviated season without thinking about their racial and social justice activism. And Chantel, is that sort of your, your take on what's been going on? Yeah, I think that's completely right. I think this season, you can't talk about the WNBA without talking about their social justice season, which is what they've called this from... Literally the first game of the year, they dedicated the season to Breonna Taylor. They had, ahead of every single game, 36 seconds of remembrance for a different um, Black or Brown woman who was killed by state violence. They took shot clock violations in games this season to inform their fans about the U.S. Census. Like, this is a very active and conscious. And now, you know, I believe that this season they really became organizers with how they've directed their followers and their fans and their viewers to vote. You know, it's not just vote Warnock. They have been directing Zoom calls with Michelle Obama and Stacey Abrams and Kimberly Crenshaw, who founded the African-American Policy Forum throughout the entire season. I've talked with players since they left the bubble about sort of the mental and emotional and spiritual strain of this season. And everyone that I've talked to said, you know, as hard as it was to play 22 games in 50 days, the harder part was sort of the activism and the organizing that happened off the court because it never stops. This is a league that is 80% Black women. And so they are fighting their fight. Yeah, and I thought that was really watching the game yesterday and I watched some of the games you know, over the course like seeing Brianna Taylor's name on their jerseys is actually sort of jarring in a way because um it, in terms of the legal process that has been determined you know what I mean like there's a narrative that that case has been resolved whereas the WNBA has said nope not quite like this is something that we still believe that deserves your attention and deserves your you know righteous outrage right and seeing that was sort of interesting and yeah it I would also argue, too, that the WNBA, man, they have brought in, like you said, Kimberly Crenshaw, right? Like they've brought in people that are actually engaged in these issues in a way that I'm not sure that the NBA has, which is not to like offend them or diminish the activism that they've engaged in. But I just remember when the Bucks, you know, decided to walk off the court, they were struggling to figure out who to call. They wanted to call the governor, right? You know what I mean? It wasn't like, oh, we've got somebody on the line. Who, who we've been dealing with, you know, these issues. They, they did that. And I I don't know if you were on that same call where Kimberly Crenshaw had set up, up with some of the other uh, mothers of women who had been killed by police violence or whatever. Like, they actually have an ongoing conversation and ongoing activism in a way that, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't seem the NBA has going on. The like, NBA is trying to set their own things up. They're not actively, it doesn't seem like they're engaged in the same way the WNBA is. And I think it's important to point out that the WNBA sort of set the table for a lot of this four years ago when they began protesting and they wore t-shirts in defiance of their league's orders and forced the league to back down about what they were permitted to do on the court. And that's continued pretty much nonstop. I mean, Maya Moore walked away in the middle of her brilliant career to advocate for a wrongly convicted felon who got out of prison in July. This has been thematic and central to the WNBA, and it's extended to fighting against one of their own owners, one of their own team owners, Kelly Leffler. It's been pretty dramatic and pretty consistent. Well, and I think the important thing to note about Maya Moore's stand, it was for Minnesota Lynx players who, after Philandro Castillo was killed in Minneapolis, 
they held a press conference. They wore shirts that said Black Lives Matter that had Philandra Castile's name on it. And there were off-duty police officers working as security guards at that game who walked off the job. This was before Kaepernick ever took a knee. And that's not to take away from anything that Colin Kaepernick has done. But I think so often in women's sports, in history, right, women's leadership sort of gets overlooked once a dude does it. Mm. Black women's leadership gets overlooked once a dude does it. And... Maya Moore is a player who, as you said, walked away from this MVP career. You know, she will even with sort of the part of her career she played, she'll go down as one of the greatest ever. And it took her freeing a wrongly incarcerated man from prison to sort of have her name on the front page of newspapers and websites and and on the tip of people's tongues. And so, but, you know, we look. Four years ago, July 2016, I believe it was, those four players, it was Rebecca Brunson, Simone Augustus, Lindsay Whalen, and Maya Moore stood up and they said enough is enough. And players got fined that year by the WNBA. So I think that's another thing we have to talk about is that ultimately those got revoked, but sort of the stance of the league and how they have the league itself and Kathy Engelbert this season coming in as a first year commissioner, how she has also sort of supported the players in their activism, in their organizing this year. I don't see another league in the world that is as informed, as active, as conscious as the WNBA. Chantel, thanks for joining us for this segment. And actually, we'll just continue the rest of this conversation in our bonus segment for Slate Plus listeners. So thanks again, Chantel, for coming in and making some time for us. Thanks for having me. Now it is time for Afterballs. And one of the stars of the Wubble has been the aforementioned Jewel Lloyd's mom, the Seattle Storm player's mother, Gwendolyn. You can follow her on Twitter. Not only can you follow her on Twitter, you should follow her on Twitter. And let's listen to this clip. You'll understand why. The clock strikes upon Gwen Lloyd versus, I mean, maybe you could get like a versus battle with a mom of one of the Aces players. It's actually kind of a sweet story. Joel Lloyd has talked about how her mom didn't um, know much about basketball when she was growing up and has actually taken a huge amount of interest and initiative in learning the sport. And it's not like a typical kind of relationship that we hear about in the media. Like you hear about the kind of like sports mom supporting the son or like the sports dad supporting the son or the daughter. But like the mom supporting the daughter is a cool relationship and one that we don't hear about enough. And also the sports parent who's not an overbearing asshole (laughs) and, you know, and has taken charge of their child's athletic career from the age of six. It's heartwarming to read about a parent who lets their kid play and become great. And it's shocking to hear, actually. It's really surprising. Yeah, in the movie Love and Basketball, I mean, one of the storylines is the the uh, heroine, uh, the, bas- the woman who ends up 
playing for the L.A. Sparks. Her mother actually is a homemaker and doesn't know much about basketball, but she doesn't actually even attempt to know much about basketball. It's sort of awkward. But anyway, so yeah. There are representations of this relationship in the media, love and basketball. Sonali Lathan. Josh, what's your Gwendolyn Lloyd? On Sunday in Arlington, Texas, big day for Arlington on the pod, Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys lost to Jarvis Landry, Odell Beckham Jr., and the Cleveland Browns, 49 to 38. Um, Dak threw for a career-high 502 yards on a career-high 58 attempts. He has 974 yards passing in his last two games, breaking the not-very-famous NFL record for most passing yards in two consecutive games. I'd give all those yards back for a different record, Prescott said after the game. I care about one stat, and that's to win. So when we don't do that, no other stats matter. So he's clearly doing the, like, I don't care about numbers thing, but I'm choosing to interpret this a little differently. I'd give all those yards back for a different record. I think he's talking about Norm Van Brocklin's single game record of 554 yards passing in a single game. Whenever an NFL quarterback gets close to 500 yards, I get extremely excited, thinking the day may have finally come. For 69-plus years, it never has. This was 1951, Norm Van Brocklin, 554 yards. There have been 24 500-yard passing games in NFL history. Ben Roethlisberger has the most with three. Two guys got the closest to the record, throwing for 527 yards. Matt Schaub and Joel. Warren Moon. Yes. Redemption for Houston. Finally a yes. positive. Yes. A positive moment for Houston in, in the podcast. Tony Romo did it on the fewest attempts, 36 for a 500-yard game. Jared Goff's 68 attempts were the most. Oof. And quarterbacks who've thrown for 500 yards are just 13 and 11 after Dak Prescott's Cowboys lost on Sunday. Van Brocklin's Rams did win back in 1951. They beat the New York Yanks 54 to 14. It was the season opener, and Van Brocklin was actually filling in for starter Bob Waterfield. And that performance did not win Van Brocklin the starting job. He'd start just one more game that season. Tough break for uh, for Norm. Judy Batista has the best story about the game. She wrote about it for The Times in 2011 and included the following fun facts. Van Brocklin broke the existing record by 86 yards. He was 6'1 and 190 pounds and, quote, despite having stubby fingers, despite having stubby fingers. I mean, there's a different time. (laughs) He was a physical passer with a powerful arm. His completion that year, percentage that year was just 51.5%. The average this year for all quarterbacks is 66.6%. The New York Yanks were 1-9-2 in 1951, and their pass defense was the worst in the league. But according to the Los Angeles Times' write-up of the game, Van Brocklin might have had even more yards, except that the Yanks' secondary covered well, which seems like it must be extremely inaccurate. So belated negative review to the LA Times writer who expressed that opinion. All right. Now, to the question that has haunted America for generations, why has no one broken this damn record? You'd think it would have been destroyed by now, given how much better teams are at passing and how much more conducive the rules are to passing. The average team now throws for 250 a game. Prescott's Cowboys are throwing for 400 a game. In 1951, teams averaged just 163 yards passing. And Van Brocklin's Rams led the league behind Bob Waterfield, throwing for what was then a crazy 267 yards per game. 
So here's one theory about why it hasn't happened. Back in the 1950s, and for a long time after that, you could beat the hell out of receivers. There weren't illegal contact penalties. There wasn't holding. There wasn't interference. That meant it was harder to get open, yes, but it also meant that plays did not result in penalty yardage. And penalty yardage is not passing yardage. Consider that in week one against Tom Brady and the Bucks, the Saints had 149 yards worth of pass interference penalties called against them. So in a world without pass interference, who knows how many of those would have been completed, maybe none of them, but maybe a world with less penalty yardage is a world where there are, sure, fewer passing yards per game on average, but maybe there are a handful more outlier games where the passing yards do pile up. Here's another theory for why it hasn't happened. I think this is a better theory. Actually, I'm not sure I believe what I just said, so I just wasted all of your time. (laughs) But I do believe in the following, which is the easiest way to throw for a crap ton of yards is to do it from the beginning to the end. You totally dominate the opposition, as Van Brocklin did in 1951. And Judy Batista wrote about that game, there was seemingly no concern about running up the score. But now, social convention is to sit on the ball if you have a lead, both because it's considered polite and so your quarterback doesn't get hurt. And so, if you have a crazily successful first half, you actually reduce your chances of setting this record. So that leaves just two possibilities. You can try to break the record if you fall way behind, like the Cowboys did on Sunday, and then you need to throw to catch up. But in that case, your opponent can drop a million people into coverage, force you to throw short, and they're also going to try to kill the clock so you don't have the time on the clock to pile up big yards. The other option is that there can be a shootout. In 2015, Drew Brees threw for 505 and Eli Manning threw for six touchdowns in a game the Saints won 52 to 49 at the buzzer on a 50-yard field goal. Yeah. If that field goal had missed, Kai Forbath had just done us a solid and not kicked that through, the game would have gone to overtime and Brees might have actually set the record in that game. So, who could break this record? The record for major college football. 734 yards in a game. And that's actually shared by Patrick Mahomes, Texas Tech, and Connor Halliday of Washington State. A little bit of disparity and pro success there. But I think the Texas Tech part there is actually more important than the Mahomes. Because the Chiefs are probably too good to have a chance for this record. But, Joel, Patrick Mahomes' coach back then, Cliff Kingsbury. Kingsbury, yep. Mm-hmm. He's now with the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. Quarterback, Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray, uh-huh. Good at throwing. They've got mm-hmm. DeAndre Hopkins, one of the mm-hmm. best receivers in the league. They're not that good. They're doing a little better this year, but they're going to be playing from behind and probably in a bunch of shootouts. So that's my prediction. Kyler Murray will break wow. the NFL single game yardage record mm. if Cliff Kingsbury doesn't get fired. Kingsbury needs to stick around long enough to give Kyler enough chances. Another Texas kid who picked football over baseball, by the way. Um, Matthew Stafford, 500-yard passer. Mm. Just, just listing people who are from Texas. R.I.P. Yeah. Sonny Detmer, by the way, the father the, the, the father of the passing offense in Texas, who died a couple weeks ago. I think he was like 76. Father of Ty Detmer and Coy Detmer, by the way. I did so, not know that. Yeah, yeah, he just passed recently. Uh-huh. All right, Joel, what is your Gwendolyn Lloyd? So I think I've made it pretty clear on this podcast that I don't think we should be playing college football right now, right? I think, you know, or football of any sort. Um, I've been pretty clear about that. You're on the record. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the SEC has persisted. College football has persisted. And on Saturday, third-ranked Florida hosted South Carolina, uh, and the Gators won 38-24. to What interested me wasn't Dan Mullen or Kyle Trask, who I would 
like to note, was a backup quarterback in the Houston area and somehow went to a SEC school and is starting and dominating now, <laughs> which is crazy. And I'm less interested in what they did to Will Muschamp, even though it's funny to see what's happening of retread Will Muschamp. But before the game, the Florida Gators tweeted out a cardboard image of my old dear friend in the stands of the swamp. And the tweet reads, we're glad we could save a spot for Ashoff ESPN in the stands with UF Gator Band as a tribute. Hashtag Oak Gators. So I don't know if we've talked about this here before, but Ed Ashoff was a very good friend of mine. We were colleagues at ESPN for a couple of years, and nobody in my life that I've known for such a short amount of time became as close of a friend. He was part of the drumline at University of Florida and went on to become a college football reporter of some repute and talent. He worked his way up to ESPN and we were on the same ESPN.com team, and he was working his way into doing the TV and everything else, right? Uh, and he, man, uh, as you can see, I haven't prepared this, but I'm just kind of speaking off the dome here because it, it uh, means a lot to my heart. But Ed, um, you know, man, he had so much uh, life ahead of him. He was so talented, one of the most beautiful people you could ever meet. And it was a few months ago, uh, he passed away on his 34th birthday after suffering from complications from pneumonia, which compounded previously undetected stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in his lungs. Um, and I can just tell you as somebody who, it was a really busy time in all of our lives, but it, you know, Ed was just a really happy-go-lucky sort of dude. And so when he got sick, we were like, oh man, um, this is really serious. What, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, just like that, he was gone. And we had a lot of plans this year, man. He had a lot of plans. He was supposed to have gotten married in March um, to his lovely fiance, Katie Bertrand, in New Orleans. And we were supposed to have been there. And for all sorts of reasons, this year has not gone as planned. But um, one thing I know for sure that as bad as 2020 has been, it would have been so much better with Ed. So it's here that I should mention that um, people, the, the University of Florida, in addition to having that tribute for him at the game with his uh, cardboard uh, cutout on Saturday, that there's also a memorial fund for him at their College of Journalism. Uh, so if you are interested in honoring the, f the life of my friend and his career, you can make a donation to the Ed Ashoff Memorial Fund at UF's College of Journalism and Communications and send it to P.O. Box 14425 Gainesville, Florida, 32604 attention gift processing. And uh, just please note, uh, it's the Ed Ashoff Memorial Fund. So anyway, thank you, Florida. Um, I don't think you should be playing football, but if you're going to do it, you did it the right way on Saturday. Thanks, Joel. And we'll put the information about the fund on our show page so people can find it there. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty and Ed Ashoff. Thanks for listening.